Well, a happy Easter Sunday to you all, or better yet, I think a happy Resurrection Sunday. Today is a special day, as you know, we used to commemorate and remember and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Christ. It's a special day for us, but at the same time, in a way, it's not that special, because we seek to remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus every day, certainly every time we gather here at church. That said, we still like to devote our attention on this special Sunday for the resurrection knowing how so essential it is to the Christian faith. You know, for me growing up, up rather, Easter was entirely a secular holiday. I was given as a kid a, an Easter basket filled with neon-colored shredded paper, I guess supposed to resemble the grass uh, of an Easter bunny that it would lay its eggs in or something. Except bunnies are mammals and they don't lay eggs, so it, it never made a, a lot of sense to me. But inside would be, you know, candy and some small presents. It was like a second-rate Christmas growing up. Uh, an Easter egg hunt at my grandma's house might be included. And that's about it. What does any of this have to do with the real meaning and purpose of Easter? Well, nothing. Nothing at all. But things have only come full circle. I mean, back in the 4th century and beyond, as the Roman Empire was becoming Christianized, the Catholic Church wanted to help this process along. So as they were rising in power, they started to appropriate all these pagan holidays and secular celebrations And they turn them into sacred feasts by attaching Christian meaning to them. This made it easier to assimilate all the pagans into the new Holy Roman Catholic Empire. And there are huge problems with this, which is, of course, why we largely ignore all of these holy days or holidays. The Bible says next to nothing about what holidays true Christians are actually supposed to observe. Today, though, it's kind of fascinating how the opposite is happening. Our culture, which is becoming more and more secular... Kind of like the ancient Romans before Christ, they're taking out all these sacred holidays and making them their own and turning them secular once again. So from Christmas to Easter, Valentine's, St. Patrick's Day, all of these once supposedly Christian holidays are now becoming, again, just secular festivals. More excuses to worship the God of consumerism, money, self. To us, though, all this is almost entirely irrelevant Because none of these are actually biblical holidays to begin with. The Bible never even tells us to annually celebrate the day of Christ's birth or the day of his resurrection. Now you may choose to do so. That's fine. Our Christian culture is very used to doing so. That's fine as well. There still is value in setting aside a special day to remember the Lord's resurrection. But let's just hope it doesn't come at the expense of remembering him the other 364 days of the year. And that's what we really want to focus on. And so this morning, like, like all churches, I'm sure, we'll have a resurrection-themed sermon. But what I really want to do is help you understand why Christ is worthy of exaltation in your life every day. Every single day of your lives, he's worthy of worship and adoration and praise. I want you to see why we should be remembering him and worshiping him, and following him every single day, not just on Christmas, not just on Easter. And that has to do with the fact that Christ is not just the Lord, he's the risen Lord. Now don't get me wrong, just because we don't make a whole lot out of the holiday of Easter, that doesn't mean we don't make a whole lot out of the resurrection. We do. The resurrection, it's it's the greatest deal for us. For if Jesus did not rise, he would not be worthy of remembering at all. You should not follow him and you'd be a, a fool to worship him. It's the resurrection, though, that makes Christ worthy of our entire lives each and every day. And so to get things started this morning, speaking of Christ's exaltation in our lives, if you have your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Just to give us a starting point, we're going to begin here. This will be mostly a, a topical message on the resurrection, of course, today. But since we're normally going through Philippians verse by verse, I figured it's a good place to start. Because this passage we've been studying lately in Philippians, it's so unique in that it speaks of the three distinct phases of Christ's existence. From his pre-incarnate glory, to his humiliation, and then to his exaltation. It's worth reading through one more time just to get us started. Philippians 2, look at verses 5 through 11. Again, Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus 
who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For weeks we've been studying these verses in detail actually. We're not going to redo that now. But I just want you to notice the connection made between his death on a cross and his exaltation. You have the eternal Son of God humbling himself, taking on human flesh. Why, why would he do that? Well, in order to die, to die even on a cross, to redeem rebellious sinners. That was God's glorious plan. And for this reason, verse 9 says, Now as the God-man, God highly exalted Jesus. He is supreme and is to be exalted above all creation. And so we've learned Jesus came down to lift us up. He was made like one of us, that we would be made like him. And as he lifts us up, now we give our lives over to lifting him up. We confess that his name is the name above all names, and that he is Lord, Lord of all. That same picture is found over in Revelation chapter 5 as well. We find Jesus, he's the lamb who's worthy of all glory and honor and blessing and dominion. All the saints will worship him forever and ever. Why? Because he's worthy for he was slain and he purchased for God men with his blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Again, you have the connection made between his death on the cross. He was slain and for that reason, he's worthy of our praise. Same in Colossians chapter one says Jesus is to have first place In all things, he's to be exalted and lifted high. Why? Because through Jesus, God reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Again, because of what Jesus did on the cross, he's worthy of of all of our praise. And so all throughout scripture, you see this connection made, the connection between his work on the cross, his incarnation and that death on the cross, and his exaltation. His praiseworthiness. Because he died, we worship him. Now, that being the case, and if you're familiar with, with the Bible, you, you know that. But it might make you wonder, that being the case, why is the resurrection such a big deal? The emphasis seems to be over and over on, on his death. It's all about his death on the cross. That's, that's how he saved us. So where does the resurrection really fit in? And, and And why is the resurrection presented as like the most important thing? Even at times seemingly more important than the cross? Is that that right? For example, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is talking about the gospel, the message of salvation. And he says about the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and was buried, And that he was raised on the third day, according to our scriptures. Okay, so we get that. That, That's the gospel, the the saving message, the good news of Christ, his death and his resurrection, both. But then the thing is, after that, Paul goes on to devote the entire chapter after that of 1 Corinthians 15, not to explaining the death of Jesus, but the resurrection. And he even goes on to say how it's it's absolutely essential to the faith. He doesn't say that of the death per se, but he says of the resurrection, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. And verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. I think intuitively we understand if Jesus didn't die on the cross, There's no gospel. There's no good news because it was on the cross that he was paying for our sins, right? 
So we would expect Paul to say that if Jesus did not die on the cross, then our faith would be worthless. If he did not go to the cross, our faith would be in vain. We'd still be in our sins. That's what we would expect. But why does he make this connection with the resurrection? If he didn't rise, it's all pointless. In a way, it's unexpected. Aren't we saved by what Jesus did on the cross? Wasn't the cross enough? Like, isn't that enough to save us? I'm not sure about you if you've ever wondered about this. I remember myself being a younger believer trying to figure out, like, okay, I get the cross, see what he did there. Why does the resurrection actually matter? What, What does it really accomplish? Why is it such a big deal? And there's even more. Paul says a lot more about the importance of the resurrection over in Romans. There he continues to connect the resurrection to our salvation. Just listen to Romans 4, 24 and 25. He says, We are those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. That may strike you like, wait a second, he was raised because of our justification. I thought he died because of our justification. So how, how and why is Paul now connecting Christ's resurrection to our, our salvation. Weren't we saved by what he did on the cross? How can you connect our salvation to his resurrection? Further consider the well-known verse, Romans 10.9, where Paul says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And to be saved, you've got to trust in the person and the work of Christ. But to summarize the work of Jesus, Paul points to not the cross, but the resurrection. You have to confess that God raised him from the dead. Again, we expect otherwise. We expect Paul to say, if you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the sin, or died on the cross for your sins, you will be saved. And that's what we hear today, preached all the time. It's what we expect. So again, why? Why is this? Why is the resurrection that the linchpin of the faith, that seemingly the most important event? And perhaps you've had some trouble yourself understanding this connection. Now maybe you get the surface answer. The surface surface answer is that if, if Jesus didn't rise, well, that means he's a liar because he said he was going to. And so if he didn't rise, that means he's a phony. It invalidates everything he said. And so that's why the resurrection matters so much. And and that's true. But the resurrection is so much more than that. So much more significant than just that. So more, more needs to be said. More needs to be studied on the value, the meaning, the impact, the importance of the resurrection. And what better Sunday to do that? So I want to help you with this this morning. And I want to help you see simply why the resurrection matters so much and how the resurrection matters so much. Simply that. We're going to spend our time now answering just those two questions and keep it as simple as that. Why the resurrection matters so much and how the resurrection matters so much. Now, to answer these questions, though, we've got to go back and talk about man or mankind. We're going to find that the resurrection is the answer to man's greatest problem. So if we're going to try and appreciate and better understand the resurrection, we need to uh, appreciate and better understand man's problem, our greatest problem. So we'll do that first. What would you say is mankind's greatest problem? You probably would say sin, the correct Sunday school answer. And it's true in a sense. But why is sin... Such a problem? Think more fundamentally, billions of people on the planet, they're they're living in sin and rebellion against God and his word, and uh, they have no problem with it. They don't see any perceived problem with sin. So what makes sin such a problem for mankind? Well, the answer is the penalty of sin, the outcome, the result, the consequence, which is what? Death. Death is our real problem. From the beginning, God warned Adam and Eve that death would be the ultimate consequence of sin. Sin, which can be defined as violating God's perfect will and laws. 
God's a God of holiness, and for man to dwell with such a God means he must likewise be holy, free from the stain of sin. Once stained, though, and defiled, the unholy must remove himself, or must be removed, rather, from God's holy presence. And so, you know, as Adam and Eve fell into sin, they they rebelled against God's perfect will and, and fell into a state of sin. They experienced in that day spiritual death, which is to say a spiritual separation from God's holy presence, which was only evidenced by the fact that they were then forcibly removed from the garden where God's special presence dwelt. And at the same time, on that day began the process of physical death, where their bodies thereafter would slowly but surely deteriorate, decay, and eventually they would perish altogether. It makes you wonder, though, if, if the penalty of sin is death, the wages of sin is death, why didn't God just kill Adam and Eve right then and there and start over? Okay, that he made them, they already blew it, they fell, they broke the rules. Why not just give them the penalty, start over, move on? He would only have been just to do so. That's merely justice. But in mercy, God allowed them to physically live. Why? Well, because he's also God of love. And he had a plan to redeem his fallen yet still beloved creation to highlight his glory. So God allows still people to have time to live on earth. That they might have a chance to be reconciled to God, to solve this sin and death problem. If, however, you remain unreconciled to God by the time of your first death, then you will encounter only a a second death, an eternal death, whereby you will be permanently separated from God's goodness, knowing only his just wrath toward sin. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, as a quick side note, if you want to follow along, you can turn to Romans 1. I said it'll be more topical today on the resurrection, bouncing around, but we'll be picking on Romans a lot. So if you if you care to follow along, you can turn to Romans. But already we've seen we have a pretty sizable problem on our hands. It's the problem of sin, which really is the problem of death. Death is the great equalizer. It comes for all of us, great and small. Those in the world may scoff at the problem of sin, but nobody scoffs at the problem of death. When it touches your loved one, nobody's laughing then. So even the world understands this problem to a degree. Everyone understands at some level, death itself represents there's something wrong with this world. Something is awry. All right, though, but I might say, well, we still have time, though, right? There's time to do something about this problem. We have time to to overcome it, to find a solution. Well, yeah, we have a a given number of years to live. But you see, the problem of death is not so easily overcome. How do you solve the problem of death? I'll tell you how most people and all world religions seek to answer the problem of death. If death represents the penalty for sin, for offending God, for wronging him, well, the vast majority believe you simply just got to pay God back. Just just pay him back. And so all world religions pretty much revolve around the idea of just you know, make it up to God. Yeah, you've, you've blown it. You've sinned. You've fallen short. Just, just make it up to him. It's a very human way of thinking. So you, you have a friend. You, you ask to borrow their, their phone, their iPhone to make a call. You drop it. The screen shatters. You feel really bad. You have transgressed them. So you say to them, I'm I'm so sorry. I'm going to make it up to you. I'm going to pay you back and and fix it. I'll fix this. And if you're a good person, you will work hard and you will pay them back. And similarly, man on his own has devised many ways to try and pay God back, to make it up to him. Have you done some some bad things in your life? Well, we all have. Just, Just work it off. Make it up to God. Do some good things. You can try giving to charity, helping the homeless, just being a nice person, being a good person all around. 
Or if that's not enough, you can try some religious deeds. Give some money to church, offer some sacrifices, do penance, give some prayers, come to church. And that should work, right? God, God will definitely listen to that and it will help make up for all the bad stuff we did, right? And that will please him and it will cause him to forget about all of our sins. That's how most people think. But scripture alone teaches that that's not enough. That, that's not how it works. You can't pay God back anything. You can't make up anything to him. It's just not how his perfect justice works. If you don't know what I mean, just, just think about our own imperfect justice system. If you're commit a great crime, it doesn't matter how many good things you've done in your life. That's not taken into account if you're on trial for a murder, for example. That's not what you're on trial for. You're on trial for the crime. And if you did the crime, you must pay the penalty. Simple as that. And for that, for, for us, the penalty is jail, maybe even life in jail. But think, before a perfectly holy and righteous God who, who cannot dwell in the presence of any sin, he cannot simply let you go or sweep your transgressions under the rug. And your little good deeds, they amount to a pile of nothing when it comes to paying back the debt you owe. Instead, you have to realize your sins, though they may seem small to you, they reach into the heavens. They are infinite offenses against God's perfect righteousness. That's why they bring an eternal debt and they require an eternal payment. Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death. And it's talking about eternal death because in the context it's contrasted with eternal life. So your sin brings a penalty of eternal death, eternal separation from the goodness of God. That's how big your sin debt is. It's eternal because that's how long it'll take you to pay back what you owe forever. And so to think that your few good works in this life would be enough is foolishness. Your sin debt is simply too great. Sin brings a penalty that you simply cannot pay. All humanity shares this problem, you, me, everybody. Romans 3, verse 10 says, There are none righteous before God, not even one. Verse 12, there are none who do good or truly seek God. Rather, verse 23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So first off here, we're beginning by talking about and understanding man's greatest problem, which is death itself. And the death problem is attached to the sin problem. As we sin against a perfectly holy God, it presents us with a penalty we simply cannot pay. That's the first part of our problem. It's a penalty we cannot pay. And so all that's left is the the ultimate punishment, eternal separation from God. So it's, it's a pretty big problem. But there's a second reason death is our greatest problem. Namely, we cannot overcome its power. Some criminals know if they're ever caught, they're done for. It's the death penalty for them. They've done so much. So they, they just live their lives on the run, constantly trying to elude the law. And some of them get away with it. They will make it all the way through life, never get caught. But before God, there, there's no escape. To where can you run or hide or flee from his presence or from death itself? Can you escape death? You can't run fast enough. Over time, man can learn to tame all the forces of the universe, from gravity to electricity, even the sun's power. But there's one force that man can never tame, and it is the the force, the power of death itself. So you see, sin presents us both a penalty we can't pay, which is death, and a power we can't overcome, which is also death. Maybe you didn't know, but God created Adam and Eve not to die, but to live forever. He made Adam and Eve to live forever in his presence in the garden. Death only entered when sin entered. But now we inherit Adam's guilt and sin nature. And all of us being sinners just as much, well, that's why we all die. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, Just as through one man sin entered into the world, 
and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. I told you, Paul has a lot to say about our sin problem and the solution in Romans. But again, we all get the problem of death viscerally. If you live long enough, you will feel the power of death's sting. It hurts. It's painful when a loved one dies. Why is that? Again, because death represents separation. Your loved one dies and you grieve at the loss of that relationship. It it hurts. And just try and imagine the pain and the grief a person would feel when they die, only to now realize they will be forever separated from God and his goodness. That is the second death. Can anyone escape this power, death's power? Can any overcome it? Many people have tried, all have failed. Rich scientists today are trying to solve the problem of death. If, you can, if we can just transplant your head onto another body, you can virtually live forever, right? Or if we can upload your consciousness into a computer, you can virtually live forever. But these are all pipe dreams. You can upload whatever you want to a computer, and the ones and zeros aren't you. Death represents a barrier we cannot overcome. It defeats all contenders. There are no victors against it. Man devises many plans, but they all end up in the same place, and that is death. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way which seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Now Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he reflected on this death problem, namely that it presents a power we can't overcome. The great and the small both go to the same place, to death. And it, it makes life seem very futile. You have you know, rich men, powerful men, even mighty kings. They commanded so much respect in this life, yet they're all laid low by death. All their riches, gone. They don't take a single penny to the grave. Their, their vast knowledge vanishes. In the end, everybody is made equal under six feet of dirt. Realistically, everyone knows they're going to die. Everybody knows death cannot be overcome. It's just such a reality, we don't even really question it. But what is the world's response outside the church? What's the response? It's either distraction or depression. That's all you got. Most go for distraction. They don't want to think about death. They don't want to talk about it. It's taboo. It's the only way to not be faced with the pain of the loss but for those who can't control their thoughts, they find only depression. Because it's, the death is the end of all of their hopes, which are only in this life. It's the end of the line. Even Christians, though, are not totally immune to such a response when they lose sight of the truth. Think about Christ's own disciples. How did they respond to his death? They sunk into depression. They had all their hopes in Jesus as their Savior. But then the sting of death struck Jesus too. Not even Jesus was immune to death. He was struck down in the worst of ways as well. And so in his death, they lost all hope. The disciples, they just huddled together in the upper room in sorrow and sadness and depression and disbelief. Even Easter morning began with the stench of, and the sting of death in the air. The women sulked their way to the tomb, and they were fully expecting to find Jesus there, his body already starting to decay because of death. It's just the power of death. We all know it. There's no beating it. Easter morning itself began with depression, for even Jesus, it seems, could not overcome death. But of course... Speaking of Easter, we now get to the good news, the solution to man's greatest problem. So far, I understand, this whole sermon has been very depressing. But why did you come to church on Easter? I trust it's to be reminded of the good news. And what is that good news? Well, only when you understand man's greatest problem is death will you see the best news is resurrection. Resurrection. As you know, everything changed when those women did not find Jesus in his tomb. 
Instead, they found an empty tomb. And a little while later, they found Jesus alive. On Easter, Jesus did what no one had, had ever done before. He had risen from the dead. We're not talking about re- resuscitation, where someone comes back to life only to die again. That's happened before. We're talking about real resurrection, where he rose to new life, never to die again. He overcame death itself. And that was the moment that changed everything. Why did Jesus come? We've been studying Philippians 2 for weeks. Jesus existed in the form of God. He was God the Son, living in perfect glory with the Father and the Spirit. Yet the Father willed for the Son to come to earth, take on human flesh, live as a man, and then die. So he could die as a man. Why is that? Well, there's no concept of death for his divine nature. Why would Jesus need to die, though? Well, like we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, he died for our sins, not his own. He had none. He wasn't paying for his own sins. But that's, that's the good news. He died to deal with our sin problem. But think about what we just learned. To do that, that means Jesus had to deal both with sin's penalty and sin's power. What is sin's penalty? Death. What is sin's power? Death. So for Jesus to really save us, he had to deal with death itself. He had to pay the penalty of sin, we can't pay, which is death itself. And he had to overcome the power of sin, which which we can't overcome, which is, again, death itself. But that is precisely what Jesus did. First, on the cross, he really was paying the penalty for our sins. He wasn't hanging up there for his sins, but ours. But by means of his divine nature and his human nature, his utter sinlessness and his perfect righteousness, Jesus could hang there as a perfect and complete substitute sacrifice for you and me, the Lamb of God slain, to take away the sins of the world. And so it was on the cross that God was pouring out the full measure of his just wrath toward your sins, but he poured it out on on Jesus in your place. Again, we talked about that penalty, this eternal penalty, penalty. It would take us eternity to pay back. But Christ, being God the Son, was able to pay it all, all of it, on that cross. Your good works, not good enough. Your deeds, not going to cut it. There's only one work that can save, and that is Christ's finished work on the cross. So Romans 6.23, we read earlier. Now we'll read the whole verse. It says, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God is not death. It's life, life eternal in Christ Jesus our Lord. So yes, the cross, the cross is still central to the gospel. That's why Paul preached, for example, Christ crucified. Of course, we know the value of the cross. But why did Paul also preach Christ raised? And let me see if I can help connect the dots now. How would we ever know that Jesus is truly the Lord who paid the entire penalty of our sins? How would we know that you know, he died on the cross? How do we know that it actually worked? That he really did it. He paid for it all. How could we ever have utter confidence in him as our savior? Well, the answer, he must rise from the dead. The only way to show that he fully paid sin's penalty was resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise, if he were still in the grave, that would mean sin's penalty was not fully paid. He, he, he himself would still be paying for it. But Jesus, being fully God, was able to pay our eternal debt on the cross fully, which is why he said on the cross, it is finished. But the resurrection proves, displays, no, it really is finished. So he lives. There's nothing left to pay. There's no more debt that demands death. The penalty that we can't overcome or pay for, he just did. And so he rose to prove, to display that. Christ's resurrection 
was the necessary proof that the atonement on the cross worked. And so this is why, for example, Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, it says, when you were dead in your transgressions. So that's us. We were dead in our sins. That God, he made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions. You were dead while you were dead. But God raised you up. He made you alive with Christ, forgiving us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You see what the Lord Jesus offers to you? He offers you life itself, the solution to death, eternal life which would need the forgiveness of all of our sins. But he, he did that. But you see, if he's not alive, he can't make you alive. If he's still paying the penalty, he certainly can't pay our penalty. But the good news is that he rose, proving all of sin's penalty was really paid up there on that cross. So remember earlier, we said sin presents us with a penalty we cannot pay, which is death. But Jesus paid that penalty, proving it by rising from the dead. Similarly, we said the sin presents us with a power we can't overcome, which also is death. But as you know, Jesus overcame that power as well, proving that by just the same, rising from the dead. In the same vein, if Jesus remained in the grave, then it would mean that there was some power greater than his power, namely death. He could conquer all things. He could still the sea. He could multiply bread, turn water into wine. He had power over all nature. But if he remained in the grave, there was one power over him. He can't be the Lord. He's not the Lord. Surely we can't look to someone for the answer to sin's power who was himself vanquished by death. If Jesus couldn't overcome and overpower death, what hope do we have? No hope. And that's what the disciples were feeling, uh, were feeling rather, before Easter. But then Easter came. And through the resurrection, Jesus was displaying that he also has overcome death's power, the power of death itself. And by rising from the dead, never to die again, he overcame death itself. And so when scripture says Jesus really is Lord over all, it means it, including even death. I'll jump back to 1 Corinthians 15. Just listen along to verses 20 through 22. It says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. For he must reign, it says in verse 25, until he's put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Jesus reigns supreme, he's exalted, and in his power he will put an end to death itself. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for us, and we know that's essential to our salvation, for there atonement was made. But death could not hold him. And only by rising from the dead could he display that he has the power to save, that he can overpower our problem, death itself. And he could therefore be for us the source of our life, our hope, and our own victory. So I said earlier this morning, I want to help you understand simply two questions. Why the resurrection matters so much? How? Well, first, this is why. This is why. Hopefully you see now Christ's resurrection was the necessary proof of his victory. It validated everything. It was the proof of our salvation. It was the proof that Jesus really can't answer the greatest problem of death. The proof of his lordship. It was the proof that he possesses life itself. He's the power of life. And so by his resurrection, we know that when Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Because of the resurrection, we, we can know 
That's true. Anyone can say that, but he means it and he proved it. When the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, it means it. It's true that he really is that Savior. Because of the resurrection, you can know Jesus really saves. And he alone saves. So go to him. This leads now, lastly, to how the resurrection matters so much. And you find that as you now follow Jesus by faith, his resurrection becomes the source of our own victory and hope in life. I just read a bit of 1 Corinthians 15, which said that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. What that means is all who believe in him, they will participate in his victory over death. We too will be raised. Our hope is resurrection. Look, because of sin, we're all going to die once. We will all face that first death. But in Christ, we can escape the second death as he raises us up to new life. His victory over death becomes our victory over death. And so 1 Corinthians 15 verse 54 and following says, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Over what? Over sin, over death, through Christ. You know, again, whenever you think of your lost loved ones, it hurts. You feel that pain. And that pain, that's the sting of death. But what if they were all raised up, never to die again? The sting of death would be gone. Death is is no more. And the thing is, all those who follow Christ will experience that victory. Just imagine the, the problem of death, gone. That's what Christ is for us. Christ's resurrection is the source of our victory in life, and therefore, it's the source of all of our hope. His resurrection is our hope. So 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Christ, through his resurrection, we are brought to new life and we're given a living hope. Not not a dead hope. It's all the world has. All they have are dead hopes. Money, health, prosperity, your career, your family, loved ones. Those hopes all perish. Only in Christ do we have a living hope which can stop death itself. If that's true for you, what's there to fear? What do you really have to fear? Romans 8.38 says, not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, no depression is needed. There was weeping Easter morning, but there's nothing but celebration thereafter. His resurrection is our living hope. Indeed, Christ's resurrection is a source of our very lives. He died to, to give us not just forgiveness, but new life. To, to give us a brand new life here and there, thereafter as well. And he rose that we might share in his resurrected life. You've heard of the phrase born again, like we just read. That's what it means. And it's only by his resurrected power that we can be born again, made new, freed from that the power and the penalty of sin. That's what it means. Granted new life. And so now we walk in newness of life. Back to Romans chapter 6, verse 4. It says, We have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So you see, Christ's resurrection becomes the source and the power of our entire Christian lives. It's his resurrection that enables us to live 
our daily lives. It's, it's our life here and there. This is why the resurrection matters so much, and this is how it matters so much. It's the basis of our entire lives here and hereafter. But you have to understand, such, such resurrected life comes only to those who believe and who follow him. Christ is the only solution to your sin problem, your death problem. But to receive that solution, you have to go to him, trust him by faith. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it all together so perfectly. mentions in verse 1 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins against him. That, That all of us were at one point dead, spiritually dead, cut off from God, merely awaiting physical and then eternal death. But verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, he made us alive. Even while we were dead in our transgressions, it says he made us alive. Together with Christ and raised us up with him. That's the gospel. That's the good news, that you were dead, but now, now you're alive. You can be made alive in Christ. Uh, here, and when it comes to the second death, you can have instead eternal life. That, that, that's good news. You can be made new and saved from, from death itself. But God says it comes to only those who believe, and not all will believe. Ephesians 2, 8-9 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's, it's a gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one may boast. Again, it's not about works, what you can do. It's not enough. It's only about what he did on the cross. But you see, only by his resurrection can he actually give you the new life you need here and there. So you must now confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead. Which is to say, you believe everything. Now that's why he said it, because it, it encapsulates everything. You believe he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. You believe he's the perfect lamb of God. He's the Lord of all. You believe he overcame in resurrection the penalty of sin and the power of sin, which is death. And so believing now, you follow him. This is what you must do. And if there are any here today who have not bowed the knee to Christ as Lord, I would urge you to do so now, today. Because you don't know when your day of first death will come, but then it will be too late. See your sin problem and see the sin solution in Christ, the risen Christ. If you cry out to him in faith to save you, to make you new, God promises to hear that cry and to make you new. And then what do you do? Well, we, our life is not here anymore. We're new. We, we're looking forward to the next life. But for now, in the meantime, we will live for him and we will do his work. I mentioned how the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is devoted to the resurrection. Remember, Paul just talks about the whole chapter. But at the very end, he gives one verse, the last verse, to application. After all this teaching on resurrection, he gives one verse of application. And he says, in light of the resurrection, how should you respond? In verse 58, he says, therefore... My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. For those who believe, think of all the sacrifices you've made. You've given up this life for the next, pretty much. You deny self, you deny the flesh, you sacrifice. There comes suffering, there comes persecution for following Jesus. The world thinks we're crazy, the world will persecute us and hate us. These are all promises we have. You make some sacrifice to follow Christ. In fact, Jesus demands you give up everything to follow him, and you die to self. We give all that up. We do it because we believe. We follow him. The resurrection says that it's not in vain. Your faith is not in vain. Your labor, all that you do for the Lord now, to serve him in love, is not in vain. And so we will be encouraged to continue until he returns or until we go to him, to just to keep on, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, just press on. That's what you do. Because of the resurrection, we we carry on. 
and trust it's not in vain. It's true, like Paul said, if you didn't rise, we're fools. We're the greatest fools of the earth, he said earlier in the chapter. We're the dumbest people on the planet if Jesus didn't rise. But if he did, this is it. This is everything. It's worth your entire life to give to him. And we believe he rose. Because he's risen, we know our labor is not in vain. So press on. These are truths we simply can't afford to remember just once a year. Only on Easter Sunday. So instead, I pray the truths of his death and resurrection fill your mind continually and guide you to live your life now, your new life, for him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says that Jesus died for all, that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We exalt Jesus because he rose on our behalf taking away our death, giving us life eternal. So let's join together now, living our lives no longer for ourselves, but for him who died and rose on our behalf. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, and our Redeemer, we thank you for Easter, for this day, which we aim to remember every day. Because it's the day of our life. It's the day when death itself was conquered. The penalty of sin was proven to be paid in full. That The power of sin was overcome and made null and void. And that was first accomplished by Christ the Lord. The first fruits from the dead in his resurrection. Lord, we know that he didn't die for his sins but ours. And here we are before you. We've all fallen short. We all have transgressed your perfect will. Meriting since penalty and since power, and we can do nothing about it. Who can overcome death? Only Christ. But the good news, Lord, is that you have offered his life to us, to us, his death for our death, his life for our life. What, what an exchange that you grant us in Christ, life eternal. I pray if there are any here, Lord, who, who don't believe, that you convict them in their heart of hearts. They, they will die one day. They all face death, and, and then what comes? Everyone lives by faith. Nobody knows what comes next by science or by, by some empirical proof. We all live by faith. Convict them, Lord, that you are the, the only way, the way, the truth, the life. That they would turn to Christ and find new life, and you would make them radically new right now. And for us who believe, may we continue to labor and strive and give you our lives. It can be hard. We sacrifice. We, we've laid down our lives, but we know it's worth it for in Christ. We have it all. We have all things. We have life eternal. There's nothing to fear. We have hope, a living hope. So may we press on knowing it's not in vain because he is risen and he's risen indeed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.